Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, we analyze the Warner Brothers films that are part of the Justice League universe, also known as the DCEU. This episode was written by myself with Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, Sidney, and Nick Begovich. You can find us all on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. Sorry for the hiatus in November. It was a very busy month for me at work, and then of course there was some family travel. But I've come out the other side, and so we are excited now to continue forward in our conversations about Justice League. And I'm also very excited for the next origin story in the Justice League universe coming out soon with Aquaman. But right now, in this episode, we are going to briefly cover scene 13, which is Cyborg learning Batman's secret identity, and then scene 14, which is Diana Prince arriving at the Batcave. So going into scene 13, we can think back to the two prior scenes that involve Cyborg. First, there was scene 6, when Alfred and Bruce were discussing Victor's genius IQ, his football scholarship at Gotham City University, and the fact that he was listed as deceased. And then there was scene 8, when Vic was talking to his father at the apartment. In that scene, Silas Stone was predominantly concerned with the possibilities of the change engine, aka the mother box. But we also saw that Vic was having a lot of trouble coping with his new powers, which are changing every day. And he's also having trouble coping with the fact that he has alien voices in his head and things that are out of his control. Vic explicitly mentioned people worrying about the next alien invasion and him wondering if it might be himself. And since that scene, we have actually witnessed the beginning of the alien invasion, specifically Steppenwolf's arrival on Themyscira and his capturing of the first mother box. So Vic was right to be worried about the alien technology that his father was so infatuated with, and which he used somewhat recklessly to save Vic. Now, here in scene 13, it is again a nighttime scene, inside the apartment where Cyborg is in his self-imposed isolation. The first shot is focused on a framed family photo, which is a nice visual parallel to scene 6. Both scenes opened up on family photos, although now we're in the bedroom. And in the bedroom, we can see that Vic's bed is nicely made. He hasn't even tried sleeping in it recently. Perhaps he doesn't need to sleep anymore, or maybe he can't sleep, because of all the information flowing through his head at all times. As the camera pulls out to see more of the room, we see Cyborg, with his hoodie and his trademark red glow, sitting in the corner. He has his head in his hands. And as he comes into view, the sound and commotion of all that information becomes audible to us. Cyborg jerks his head up as he hears Victor Stone's name being mentioned by somebody, and we recognize Alfred's line about Vic being deceased. So Cyborg is even accessing some sort of audio equipment that's on Bruce Wayne's private jet. One would assume that Bruce has pretty high-tech security measures on his information, but this shows Cyborg's next-level technological abilities, because he accesses it without even really trying. And this won't be the last time that some Justice Leaguers make short work of Bruce Wayne's state-of-the-art defenses, by the way. We cut to a close-up of Cyborg, and he's looking at his hands, as if he's just realized that yet another new capability has come to him. He opens his hands, and a visual display is constructed in front of him. It's a pretty cool effect, though I don't think this exact power will ever be used again in the film. But we see the photographs of Vic Stone on the GCU football team, So this has to be kind of a personal moment for Vic to see himself in his human form and what his life was like before the accident. Um, The new power, though, that he has as Cyborg and the information are both surprising to Cyborg. So he closes it down for a second. He has to kind of process it. And then he leans forward and opens his hands back up, ready to dive into the information. He seems to intuit how to scroll. He moves his hand and goes through to a photo of Bruce Wayne from the Wayne Hanger private security camera. 
He scrolls again and sees Batman with an image taken by the Gotham Bank rooftop camera. And next, from a Batcave cam, he sees Bruce Wayne in the Batsuit with his cowl off. An identity protected so carefully for 20 years, Cyborg is so powerful he cracked it in a matter of moments. He scrolls again and sees the Batmobile, but the important information has already been shown. Cyborg knows who Batman is, and he knows that Batman was talking about him. That's the end of the scene, but presumably off-screen, Cyborg will look into it a bit more, and he may even see everything that Bruce has gathered thus far about the Parademons and the Three Mysterious Boxes. We also find out later that Cyborg determines Wonder Woman's identity as Diana Prince as well. So Vic is getting information about his eventual League mates, but at this point he is still very much isolated, and he still doesn't really know the implications of his origins as Cyborg. In a quick scene here that we had without any dialogue, it does an efficient job of reminding us of Cyborg's tumultuous mental state, while also planting a couple seeds for later when he eventually interacts with both Bruce and Diana. Since Cyborg was looking at Bruce and the Batcave, the transition is pretty smooth into scene 14, where we are headed to the Batcave. We have a flyover establishing shot where we see the lake and Bruce's lake house from Batman v Superman, and so we know that there's an entrance to the Batcave hidden just below that water. The trees here have a bit of orange and dark red color to them, so being in the New Jersey area, this is probably October or early November. People who are real continuity hawks might be wondering exactly what year this is supposed to be. Details like this aren't really my strong suit, so for those of you who have worked this all out, let us know the exact timeline here of the stuff in Justice League. But to think about it just briefly, um, if we assume BVS took place in the autumn of 2015, then it seems as though the Lois and Martha stuff earlier in the film is probably in 2016 sometime. Uh, Martha had a few months where she didn't keep up with her mortgage payments, and Lois still isn't really back in the groove at work, so that seems like the sort of thing that might be like four months out, six months out, I would guess, um, from the death of Clark. Bruce was presumably gathering info from Lex's notes and monitoring parademons right away after Superman's death, but he had time to grow a beard, and he went up to meet Arthur Curry, and we don't know exactly how long it's been since he did that. When he met Arthur, it was right after a king tide, which might mean January. Um, in some cases, that's when they say you know the, the highest tides are in early January. But we can't necessarily say that because king tide is not a technical term. And by some definitions, there are actually four king tides throughout the year. And in that case, it just means tides that are generally higher because of the alignment of the sun and moon relative to Earth. We also don't know exactly when Steppenwolf arrived on Themyscira, but we can presume that Diana probably acted very quickly upon seeing the warning fire from her mother. So my best guess is that this is probably the autumn of 2016, roughly one year after BVS. It would put Justice League about a month or two after the ending of Suicide Squad, uh, when Bruce got the files from Amanda Waller, so that kind of makes sense. But I can't prove that timeline. Uh, another interpretation, one that's fairly simple, would be to just say that this film takes place in the autumn of 2017, because that's when the film was actually released. Anyway, we cut into the Batcave, and we see some audio analysis on a computer screen, as Bruce is working on his shot, but he's listening and trying to figure out the sound that the Parademon reacted to so strongly in scene two. The computer is cycling through several different alarm sounds, and then Bruce points out to Alfred the one that sounds like the right one. Alfred says he'll try to use that sound to rig something into the suit. It might give Batman an edge if he faces more parademons in the future. 
And this, by the way, is a common screenwriting tactic called setup reminder payoff. Scene two was the setup when we saw the parademon kind of flustered by a specific alarm sound. Why the parademon was flustered in that specific way, we don't know, but it was filmed and edited in a way that we are clearly supposed to notice it. Then, here in scene 14, we have the reminder, which is to help us make sure that we notice that setup and that we remember it for later. And so at this point, in seeing the reminder, a keen movie watcher is expecting the payoff later in the film. And of course, we do have the payoff later when Batman is doing his would-be suicide run before the final battle. This screenwriting technique of setup, reminder, payoff is very practical, but in this instance, it also feels a bit sloppy. Like I said, there's no real reason that we're given for why this particular sound would be especially problematic for the parademons. Nor is this alarm sound thematically connected to other story elements, as far as I can tell. Hippolyta did light a signal fire, which is kind of like an ancient version of an alarm siren, but I don't see any meaningful connection between those two things. I don't have any inferences to draw from it or parallels to draw from it other than to notice it. Um, And the parademons, so if we think about parademons more, they are drawn to fear. They smell fear. But I don't personally see how the fear angle connects or relates in any important way to their inability to put up with this siren. Uh, It's also, by the way, a bit odd to me that Bruce is doing this, you know, trying to isolate the sound so long after his actual interaction with the parademon where he first heard the siren. That was before he grew a beard and went up to visit Aquaman. For most people, the auditory memories that we have or something that we hear during the day, those decay fairly quickly. And so if you wanted to find the precise sound that you heard, your best bet would be to do it as soon as possible, not weeks later. Although granted, that's most people, and Bruce Wayne is not most people, so maybe we can let that slide. Going on in the scene, we pull out to a wider shot, and we see that Bruce is working on a large aircraft, which we will later find out is the Flying Fox, fittingly named after the large species of bat. Flying foxes are the largest type of bat, and they can be four feet wide and three pounds heavy, and they're found predominantly in India and the Pacific Islands. As we're looking at the flying fox ship or trying to figure out what this thing is, Diana strides into the foreground of the shot. Then we go into a nice angle where Bruce is tightening something with a wrench, and that's right in the foreground of the shot, and Diana steps right into a gap window in the background of the shot, and she's kind of out of focus. The dialogue opens with a nice bit of banter here, building on the great repartee that they had in BVS. Bruce doesn't even have to look to see who it is, but he knows it's Diana, and he says that he spent millions on the building's security. And Diana replies casually, yeah, it looked expensive. This is the kind of humor that we love because it fits the situation and it continues the dynamics between these two characters, with Bruce used to being in control of every situation, and Diana consistently putting him in his place, just like she did in BVS several times. This is also a scene where there are no immediate threats, nor any big dramatic tensions, so the humor is welcome and doesn't take away from anything else. This is why we prefer situational humor like this rather than a steady stream of on-the-nose quips. Bruce turns away from his work, and he leans down on the railing and says a simple hi to Diana. She smiles in response. And so speaking of Bruce and Diana's relationship, they seem comfortable enough with each other that perhaps they have been staying in contact since Clark's funeral. But they haven't been too close, because as Alfred said on the plane, Bruce has her number, 
but seemed to be too reluctant to use it, even though there were some important dangers arising. Even if they don't check in with each other regularly, they did go through something incredibly dangerous and incredibly important in BVS. So that type of shared experience can make it where you're able to reconnect with someone fairly quickly. Diana asks about the new ship, and Bruce responds that it's a prototype troop carrier. So as an audience, we were naturally wondering exactly what this was, and now we get just enough information to presume that it will be used later in the film to transport to Justice League. Diana looks at the ship and says, I once knew a man who would have loved to fly it. Then she looks down in a somber moment, a quick but meaningful connection to the Wonder Woman film and Steve Trevor. This is also a setup for later, when Bruce and Diana will have some personal drama relating back to Steve and to Diana's long-term response to losing Steve. We will have some further thoughts about that scene when we get to it, when Bruce is needling Diana about Steve's death and Diana shoves him for it. For the time being, we'll just say that we like this subtle moment a lot better. We see Diana's sadness and the fact that, even a hundred years later, she still feels that loss. Many things still constantly remind her of Steve. And we also get this unspoken sense that perhaps Bruce can or is kind of thinking about somewhat filling the role that Steve had for Diana. We saw some of their flirting in BVS, but that was before we knew about Diana and Steve's love story. What will that flirting and potentially budding relationship between Bruce and Diana mean when she still carries this grief with her? Of course, in general, when you've lost a romantic partner to death, you do not need to completely move on from them in order to find a new love. Hopefully a new partner can respect and deal with the fact that there was a love and loss in the past, and it's never totally wiped away, nor should it be. But it can still be a source of tension, and the implication that perhaps the new partner is not living up to the standards set by the prior partner. Regardless of the romantic angle, which wisely was hinted at but not fully developed in this film, there is still a platonic sense in which Bruce is sort of standing in for Steve relative to Diana. In Wonder Woman, we saw that Steve was a world-weary soldier who was sort of jaded, but still very much a good person and a self-sacrificing hero. He gave up his own personal pursuit of happiness in order to do what he could in a larger fight for justice. Steve helped to show Diana the positive side of mankind. Here, Bruce has also been world-weary and jaded, but he is trying to be a better person following the events of BVS. He's maybe even giving Diana some new hope in mankind, um, by Bruce getting better, Diana may be thinking that there is hope for the future of mankind. Bruce has also sacrificed his personal happiness in many ways, in pursuit of his own version of justice. And in this movie, we will see Bruce struggling to make a sacrifice similar to what Steve and Clark have done before him. But Bruce's move toward self-sacrifice is a bit different, because he is doing it because he fears that he's past his peak, whereas Steve and Superman were clearly still very much in their primes. Another parallel between Steve and Bruce in relation to Diana is that they both partner up with her to form a team. With Steve, he and Diana went to recruit the Oddfellows. And here, Bruce and Diana will end up partnering to try to bring together the Justice League, the new Age of Heroes. To end the scene, Bruce says that they'll need more than a pilot. He thinks there is an attack coming. And Diana, having received the message from Themyscira, says, Not coming, Bruce. It's already here. And that will launch us into the scene where we find out what Diana already knows about Steppenwolf and invasions from Apocalypse. Thanks for listening, and to show our appreciation for your patient and continued support, 
we are doing another giveaway. This time, thanks to Alessandro, we are offering up a Blu-ray DVD digital combo pack of the ultimate edition of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. It's an unopened copy of the movie, so you can either keep it as a collector's item, or perhaps it would be a good gift for someone later this month. Or, although this would surprise me given the nature of our audience, but perhaps you don't actually have a copy of BVS yet and you just need it for yourself. But anyway, for your chance to win the BVS Ultimate Edition, just tweet hashtag release the Snyder Cut and hashtag JLU Podcast Giveaway. Or if you don't have Twitter, you can email jlupodcast at gmail.com with your name and shipping address. Patrons are already entered in the giveaway, but they can get multiple chances to win with a tweet or email. That's hashtag release the Snyder Cut and hashtag JLUPodcastGiveaway on Twitter. The Snyder Cut, of course, refers to Justice League, but whenever we look back at the brilliance of BVS, it reminds us how much we want the true follow-up to that movie. So that's why we're asking for the release the Snyder Cut tag, as well as JLU Podcast Giveaway. Speaking of our patrons, you can join us at patreon.com slash jlupodcast. Patrons are automatically entered into all giveaways, and that starts at just $1 per month. At the $4 level and above, you also get access to bonus content, like my review of Teen Titans Go to the Movies, or my discussion with Alessandro about the future of the DCEU. Or, if you're hearing new rumors about casting for Matt Reeves' The Batman, you could go back and listen to my conversation with Nick, about all the cinematic incarnations of Batman. Also, the $4 patrons will get access to our forthcoming analysis of Man of Steel. So if you're a fan of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, go to patreon.com slash jlupodcast and consider joining us for that Man of Steel analysis that will be starting up very soon. And yes, we are also planning to cover James Wan's Aquaman, so look for that later this month too. That will be in the main podcast feed.